today. Uh, got a lot of good things to talk about this morning. If you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and open up to Hebrews chapter 10. Um, we're going to do a quick overview of verses 1 through 18 as you're finding your way there. And then we're going to look at primar- primarily verses 19 through 25. Now, if you were in Sunday school, the last section of the Explore the Bible section of verses goes very well along with verses 1 through 18 of Hebrews chapter 10. So if you were reading in Sunday school this morning and you read those uh, verses there, it just amazed me this morning as I was teaching with the students um, how well that goes along with what we got today. So just in an overview of looking at 1 through 18, I don't have points for this, so just uh, be patient. Uh, We'll get there. Uh, Verses 1 through 18. In verses 1 through 4 of chapter 10, we see that sacrifices are insufficient. The old covenant sacrifice is not as great as the new covenant sacrifice because, you know, all those were temporary where Christ became the eternal once-for-all sacrifice. That's what Jesus became. So he is, uh, he is sufficient, whereas the Old Testament sacrifices were insufficient. That's verses 1 through 4 of chapter 10. Verses 5 through 10, we see God's will for Jesus becomes Jesus' will for God. For the Father is a better way to put that. God's will for the Son became the Son's will for the Father. We see that in verses 5 through 10. I'm not going to go over that in a lot of detail. And in verses 11 through 15, we see how the old covenant priests were ne- excuse me, the old covenant priests' work never fulfilled the requirements of the law, but our new covenant high priest, his work completely fulfilled the requirements of the law. Christ fulfilled it all. And we see that there. That's all of verses 1 through 15. Now, verses 16, 17, and 18 go right along with what you read in your final portion of Scripture in Sunday school this morning. You see that in verses 16, 17, and 18. It says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. If you were in Sunday school, did it not say that? It did say that. And this is what he says will happen, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. How many of you were in Sunday school this morning? Raise your hand. Is that not basically the identical passage of Scripture that was in there? Yes, it was. Here the author of Hebrews, he's constantly telling us how Christ is the greater sacrifice. Christ is the new covenant. This is the covenant, verse 16, that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds. I will write them. Then he adds... Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. You remember that? That was the last verse, basically, of our Sunday school material this morning. So as I wrote this in my notes, I put God's laws, this is verse 16, God's laws are on our hearts and in our minds, not only on tablets. And I'm not talking about iPads and Samsung Galaxies. Uh, God's remembrance of us no longer recalls our sins. His remembrance of us, when he thinks of us, he doesn't go, oh, you know what? Those people sure were a bunch of problem causers. They were sinful, disgusting. No, when God thinks of us now, when we have proclaimed him as the Lord of our life, he thinks of us as his children. He sees us as the co-heirs with Christ. He sees us as holy and beloved and as his bride. That's how he sees us now. 
And in the latter part, verse 18, before we really get into what I'm preaching this morning, verse 18, it says, Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. So that says God's remission of sin through Christ no longer means another offering for sin. Christ, life, death, sacrifice, it was all sufficient. There's never a need for another sacrifice again. We don't bring doves and pigeons and all that kind of stuff in here. Uh, we wouldn't be able to keep carpet. We need to pull up the carpet and, and, and probably uh, sand down the concrete. It might be even wood under here. I don't know. But we'd have to clean all that up. We'd have a mess on our hands every single week. Boy, I'm thankful we ain't got to do that, right? I'm telling you, I bet you Wayne's happy we ain't doing that either, you know? <laughs> I mean, he'd be very thankful. I'm thankful. But you know what? We have one sacrifice. Christ's sacrifice was sufficient. It met everything we need. One drop of our sinless Savior is enough to redeem all of mankind. But he shed his blood for us. We're grateful for that, and we're going to talk about that today. How do we enter the presence of God? Jesus' presence is greater, is what I've entitled this portion of text. But Jesus' presence is greater. How do we enter into God's presence? Let's look at verses 19 through 25 in Hebrews chapter 10. Scripture reads like this from the New King James. It'll be on the screen. It says, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us, there's three let us in this text, so pay attention to that, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider one another in order to stir up love to stir up good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching this is the word of God as we look at this passage of scripture we see, verses 19 through 22, we see entering God's presence. Entering God's presence. Well, how do we do that? I mean, that is a place that is very reverent. It's a place that is the holiest of holies. You know, in the Old Testament, there was the temple. And in the temple, we can go back and we can look at Exodus chapter 26, verses 31 through 34. And we'll do that shortly, but not right at this very moment. But in Exodus 26, 31 through 34, we see where God outlines what it looks like for the tabernacle and then for the placement of the Ark of the Covenant and then the veil that is to separate the Holy of Holies from the temple and the tabernacle. And he explains all that. We're going to get to that in a moment. But we understand that there is none more holy, nor none more mighty than Jesus Christ. When we see and we think of Isaiah and we think of the text where uh, Isaiah was caught up and he saw, saw God seated on the throne, high and lifted up, and the, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And all of them were crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That is the only characteristic that is named of Christ three times because that is his defining characteristic that he is 
holy. Who may ascend the holy hill? Who may stand in the presence of God? It is those who have a clean hands and have a pure heart, who have not lifted up their souls to an idol and have not sworn deceitfully. That was Psalm 24 that we looked at at summer camp. That's who could be there. And that is us who have proclaimed Christ as Lord of our life. But it's not because we have made a proclamation. It is because Christ has made a destination of our heart and He has changed us. That's the reason why we can stand before a holy God. It's not because we're holy in and of ourselves. It is because Christ is holy. Christ has met every need, every requirement, everything that was ever set before to meet for the sacrificial requirement once for all. Once for all. And how did he do it? Let's look at the passage of Scripture. We'll find out. The author of Hebrews makes it very clear. He says, now therefore, brethren. Now therefore is there. We need to see what it's there for. We just kind of overviewed verses 1 through 18. And the final thing that that author says is that where there is remission of these, where there is remission of iniquity, that means pardon. Where there is a pardon of these, where there is a pardon of iniquity, there is no longer an offering of sin. So therefore, brethren, because there's no need for any more offerings, having boldness to enter the holiest, how do we enter? By the blood of Jesus. It's not on your merit. It's not on what you've done. It's not on what you haven't done. But it is on what Christ has done and he has shed his holy precious blood for you and I I am not going to skirt around the blood of Christ many people have said we need to get the blood out of the hymn books people have said we need to take the blood out of the message well if you take it out there's no salvation that is foreign to anything biblical whether it be Christianity or Jewish in their faiths if there's no blood there is no forgiveness of sin Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or pardon of sin. Christ's blood is 100% necessary. It's needed. And it's the only thing pure enough to purify the stain of sin on our life. We need the blood of Christ in our life. Each and every person is in need of the blood of Christ. This is the new covenant as we have been looking at for some time now. As we have been walking through Hebrews, it is the blood of Jesus that gives us the covenant. One commentator, his name is Newell, he wrote it this way. He said, you see, no one yet came in before God in heaven. The way into the holiest was not yet made manifest. We see that as we look back into Hebrews chapter 9, verse 8. But when our Lord was pierced, when he poured out his blood and laid down that life, which was indeed his blood. We see that in Leviticus 17, 11. And he was raised up through and in that pierced flesh. Behold, the veil was gone. Was not, was not sin gone? Yes, by the blood of Jesus. Was not he the Son of God? Yes, indeed. Yet he was man. He said, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Were we made nigh unto God? Yes, in Christ's blood. And his pierced flesh proves all this to our hearts. And lo, we are before the throne of grace in heaven. 
So we enter into the holies, one, by the blood of Jesus, two, by the newly slain and living way, three, through the veil, his flesh, and four, we have him as our great high priest over the house of God. That's what Newell wrote in his commentary referring to this passage of Scripture. We have this blood of Jesus that allows us to enter into the presence of God, the holiest. That's how we enter. How else do we enter? By a new and living way. It's a new and living way. That's the reason why we call it the New Testament or New Covenant. Because Christ is the new way. The old way was to come in and offer sacrifices once a year or, or on a regular basis, coming back again and again. Now, the Scripture tells us that we are to offer our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto the Lord. It says in the scriptures, it tells us that we should take up our cross and follow him, which means a daily dying. So yes, there is a sacrifice of ourselves for Christ's glory and his work. But there's no more of this external sacrificing. Christ was the sacrifice. And nothing else was worthy. There's nothing else, no one else who could bear the brunt and the burden of sin for all of mankind. Only Christ could do that. He was compelled and called and sent by the Father in our place for our sins. That was Jesus Christ. That scripture says that it was by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us. When we think about that new and living way, that means that he inaugurated the means. You know, we have the inauguration every four years of a president. Well, listen, because it's supposedly new. Listen, Christ inaugurated the new covenant. And he inaugurated it not by signing with a pen, but by shedding of his blood. That's how the new covenant was inaugurated into effect. It was the fact that Jesus came is our propitiation, as we have looked at in years past and looked into this passage of Scripture here. He came and he stood in our place, took upon himself our sins, died on the cross in our place. He rose again and he is coming again. He is coming again. And it was through this new and living way, this inaugural, it's the means by which he came. So we see how can we enter God's presence? It's by the blood of Jesus. It's through the veil. We come through the veil. And so when we think about this, uh, this is in reference to the holiest of places standing before God the Father. This veil is through the giving of Christ's incarnate body. His flesh is our propitiation for our sins. If you have opportunity, you can flip back over to Exodus chapter 25. As I quote 26, excuse me, as I said earlier in verses 31 through 34, Exodus 26, 31 through 34. And an instruction God is giving Moses on how to do this. God says, you shall make a veil woven of blue, purple and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. You shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps. Then you shall hang the ark of the testimony. Excuse me. And then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. 
The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. That's capital M, capital H, talking about God's presence. And you shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy. You shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand across from the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south. And you shall put the table on the north side. Now listen. That's talking about that blue veil. I want to tell you some beautiful things about that. Blue in blue tapestry and the blue color in Jewish tradition usually represented purity is what the color blue represented in Jewish culture. The color purple meant royalty. We see that often as we drape the royal cloth around the, uh, the, the crucifix that we put up uh, at Easter. And then the scarlet represented the blood of Christ. And all of that is talking about, and all that is embroidered into this veil. And the only one who could fulfill that fully, in and of himself, and to be the sacrifice, to be our high priest, is Jesus Christ. He was the only pure person on the planet. He is the most holy. As Scripture tells us, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He has purple in royalty. And in that scarlet is the representation of the new covenant, the blood of Christ. God knew what He was doing all the way back in Exodus when He was preparing the way for the one to break the veil. And He did it in His flesh that veil was the representation of Christ because you know and as we know when Jesus Christ died on that cross the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom saying there is no longer a need to separate the holiest God through Christ is the way we get to him through Christ is the way we get to God he is the he is the path he is the veil. As that scripture said, and we just read in Hebrews, there it says, by a new and living way, which he consecrated. That, that veil that was sewn together with artistry and all that kind of stuff with the cherubim. Listen, there was no life in that. But there was life in the flesh of Christ. And when he gave it up, when he gave it up and laid down his life for our sakes, he gave us he gave us a way, a new and living way through the veil that is his flesh. He was pure, he was royal, and he gave of his blood. That's what he has done for us. That was through the veil. And since the veil is removed, that believers are not restricted to the outer courts as in the earthly tabernacle, but have full rights to the heavenly presence of God himself. This is not through any merits of our own, but by the blood of Jesus. By virtue of Christ's sacrificial blood given once for all at Calvary, believers may enter the presence of God without hindrance and without need of further sacrifices. That's what Homer A. Kent Jr. wrote in his epistle, uh, his commentary of the epistle of Hebrews. Christ was our matchless sacrifice and our incomparable priest. So we have, how do we, how do we come before the holiest? How do we come with boldness? We come by, by the blood of Jesus. We come by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And we come by having a high priest over the house of God. And that high priest is none other than Jesus himself. That's who he is. He is the high priest. 
And with this great high priest, we should not be looking back to the old system just as those who were new to the faith from Jewish tradition should not have been looking back to the same old way. We don't need to look back. We need to look forward. We've got a great high priest. We've got one who stands on our behalf, who is praying, who is speaking to the Father on our behalf. The Holy Spirit is interceding for us to the Father through the Son, and that's what He is doing. We have this high priest who is mediating in our advocate on our behalf, sitting at the right hand of the Father. That is Jesus Christ. That's how we come boldly and confidently to the throne of Jesus. So, in knowing these things, so, so since we know that we have these ways to come, we've got this way of coming through the blood of Christ. We have this way of coming through this new and way, through, this, through the veil of the flesh of Christ. When we have this way of coming through to the high priest. So what do we need to do? There's things that we need to do. We need to draw near to him. We need to draw near to him. We need, we need to hold fast our confession and we need to consider our fellow believers. So when we look at this passage of scripture, you see there, it says in verse 22, which is one of the three uh, mentions of the phrase, let us, let us. And, and as I wrote this down, this is a request of surrender of will. This is a request of surrender of will. Just as Christ surrendered his will to the Father in the garden, he said, not my will, but thy will be done. So we need to submit, uh, we need to request, we need to give a surrender of our own will. And he says this, the author writes, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. So let us, let us surrender our will. Instead of drawing to the things of the world, instead of drawing to everything else that there is out there, let us draw near to him. Scripture tells us if we will draw near to God, he will draw near to us. We need to draw near to him. Well, there's a way to do that. We need to draw near to him with a true heart. Draw near to God with a true heart. And a true heart is representative of our inner selves. This is our will, our thoughts, our emotions, our character. We need to draw near to Him. So it's important for us to consider how the new covenant involves the writing of God's laws on the human heart. What's in our heart determines our outward behaviors. What's in our heart determines our outward behaviors. He's already said, if you go back in the earlier part of that chapter, in verse 16 of chapter 10, he said, this is the covenant that I will make with them in those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts. And in their minds, I will write them. So with a true heart means that I've got his word written on my heart. You know, last Sunday, some of our students got up here and shared the word of God from their, from their hearts and from their minds. They memorized those at camp. Listen, you can memorize those things and they can be in your mind, but if it makes no difference in your lives, it's not really in your heart. It's the same thing with salvation. There's a lot of people who have a knowledge of God, but they have no passion of God. They have no desire, no true heart to draw near to God. Oh, I know all about God. I've read my Bible front to back. That don't mean anything. It doesn't carry any water if you don't love Him, if you don't serve Him. And if you don't share him, it means nothing. 
There's lots of people out there, oh, I know the Bible. They can argue front and back. They can, till they're blue in the face. They know all about the Word of God, but they've never shared the gospel with a single person. Not a single person. They've not signed up to serve anywhere in the church because they ain't found out if they even gifted to do anything in the church. You know why? Because you ain't found out if you got a relationship with the Lord because you ain't read His Word to find out if you know what the gifts are from the Word to share and serve in the church. I'd much rather scroll through Facebook and read everybody else's lives than read about the life of Jesus. Oh, let me share about everything that's going on in the world. Let me share with you about Jason Aldean. Let me share with you about Rock the South. Let me share with you about everything else. But, oh, goodness, don't dare ask me to draw near to him. You probably quote half the words to that new song that's supposedly banned, but yet you can't quote the Ten Commandments. Listen, we, we've got to be mindful that this is what we, we've got to draw near to God. Draw near to Him. Let Him be your passion. Let Him be your God. Let Him be your focus. Let Him be your fulfillment, your satisfaction. If we draw near to God, we must do so with hearts genuinely committed to Him. Let us draw near to Him, assured of your relationship by your faith in Him. Look at what it says, in full assurance of faith. What does that mean? It, this stresses that it is only by trusting Christ who has performed for us the high priestly work that gives us access to God that we can draw near at all. And because we now have this relationship by faith, we can come into His presence and not just come into it, but draw near to Him. To be in his presence is our desire. Holiness is what is in God's presence. And apart from his holiness abiding within us, in our pursuit of holiness about us, we cannot ascend that hill or stand in his presence, as I quoted from Psalm 24 earlier. We've got to have these things in our lives. It's so that we may draw near to him. You know, people have personal bubbles, you know what I mean, in our lives today. You know, the people are like, no, you're getting in my space, you're getting in my face, you're getting in my bubble. Well, God's like, okay, he's got a holy bubble. You know what I'm saying? If you want to be in it, you need to be pursuing these things. We come in by the blood of Christ. That gives us access to be in his presence. But if you want to be intimate with the Lord, we need to continue to pursue to be in that sanctified state of saying, I want to set myself apart from the world and set myself apart to Christ. Sanctification is not just a big word that we throw out at church. Sanctification is the process of being more like Christ every day of our lives until he calls us home. We should desire to be more like him. Look what else it says. Let us draw near to him. Uh, let's see. Let me move back over here to my passage of scripture. And having a high, excuse me, um, ha and uh, having our hearts sprinkled uh, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure, pure water. God's purifying of our minds and his washing of our bodies is another way that we should be able to draw near to him. This is through the blood of Christ that is without spot or blemish. This is, it, it recalls the language of the old covenant. Okay, it recalls the old language. Okay, the washing of the water and the, and the uh, sprinkling. Because, you know, if, if you remember right, you know, they would sprinkle things like they would have that, 
uh, they'd do the wave offering and they would sprinkle, sprinkle that wave offering everywhere with the blood of the goats and all that kind of stuff. They'd sprinkle it on the top of the Ark of the Covenant to purify it. And see, that's what it's talking about, though, but it's the sprinkling of God on our hearts and our lives, the, the blood of Jesus on us. And it's cleansing us. And this, this comes from a statement there in Hebrews 9, 13 about this purifying our minds and washing our bodies. And, and so we, we understand that we need to come, and the only way we can come is by the blood of Christ. So let us draw near. Let us draw near. Secondly, let us hold to our confession. Look there in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So the first thing, when I, I broke this down into hold fast, hold fast without wavering, and then he who holds you is faithful. So let's think about that, hold fast. This is imagery of a tight grip. You ever thought about a tight grip? Uh, when we went down to Camp Baldwin and we did the uh, rock climb, right? You know, we're trying to shimmy across this wall and you got these little bitty things that poke out. And, and uh, boy, it's, it, when I got done, I couldn't, I couldn't hardly close my hands down because I was holding so tight to that wall. And it, it hurt to even close my hands. So I had to keep my hands up because it hurt. Well, see, the Bible is telling us, hold fast, hold fast to your confession. Hold fast to it. It's like when you're walking with your child, like when your kids were little, or your grandkids or great-grandkids come to visit you, and you're walking, and you might be going in a store, or you might be going to the zoo, or you're going somewhere, and you're holding their hand. Buddy, you're holding that little hand tight. Now, if you're like me, I got, I got some pretty good-sized hands. So, like, I'm having to manipulate how to hold that little hand and not hurt it. But I'm holding that hand, and I'm holding tight, and I'm talking to them the whole way. Be careful. Stay on this side. You know, we, we need to be careful. Hold tight. And then it says, hold tight without wavering. This hold shouldn't be slipping. You shouldn't be slipping in what you know to be true. You shouldn't be slipping in your faith, slipping in what you know to be true. Don't let the world create confusion in you. Don't let the world create hostility within you. Don't let the world create doubt within you. Hold fast without wavering this confession of who Christ is. Consider Abraham in Romans chapter 4, verse 20 through 22. It tells us this. That Abraham, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. But he was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully convinced that what he was promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. It was accounted to him for righteousness because he did not waver. Guys, we had to hold fast to our confession. And it will be counted unto us the same it's righteousness. That's not salvation, but a right walk with God. Because if we let things slip, we begin, our walk gets, gets, gets real sketchy. Whether I'm here at this church, whether I'm home, whether I'm at Walmart, or whether I'm at the ball field, whether I'm reading a storybook to my niece, or whatever I'm doing, i got to hold fast to my confession. Hold fast without it letting slip through my hands. And listen, this is the thing about this confession. Because this confession is all wrapped up in the one who holds you and how he is faithful. It's all wrapped up in him. Uh, Leon Morris wrote in his commentary, he said, We as believers can hold fast to our hope because behind it is a God in whom we can have full confidence. 
God is thoroughly to be relied on. When he makes a promise, that promise will infallibly be kept. He has taken the initiative in making the promise, and he will fulfill his purposes in making it. That's what Leon Morris wrote. Sometimes people question God's attentiveness, but God is on his way with resources for endurance. Things might even become more difficult. In the very process of enduring, discipline and strength will grow as rich fruit in your life. And the tragedies of today will become the triumphs of tomorrow. That's what Lewis Evans wrote in his commentary. So as we conclude in this final point, let us consider our fellow believers. And boy, I could preach a sermon just on this text alone, but I'm going to kind of move kind of quick through here. There was, first off, let us draw near. Let us hold fast. And here, let us consider one another. The Christian faith is not a Christian faith, faith of isolation. The Christian faith is a faith of community. It is one where if there is a need, the need, the church comes together to try to meet it. If there is a hurt, the church comes together to try to heal it. If there is a loss, the church comes together to try to fill it. That's what church is all about. It's about community. It's about making Christ known, obviously. It's about making Christ known, Christians growing in their faith, and, and coming together to love and support and, and care for one another within the bride and within the body of Christ. So what does the author here of Hebrews write? What, what does he write? Excuse me. He says this in verse 24. He says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love. Okay? So let us consider them in love let us consider them in love and let us consider them to the point that it stirs up love within them now love is a broad term we know that today love can talk about like a brotherly love it can be like a familial love like within the family it can be like a like a, a relationship of a husband wife type love uh there's a, and then there's the agape type love which is a love that has no limits a, a love that just it loves like Christ's love. We know there's a, a lot of different definitions of love. But we need to consider our fellow brothers and sisters in love. And in stirring them up to, to live in a way that is lovely. In a way that is loving. In a way that brings honor and glory to Christ by the way we express the love of Christ to each and every person we come in contact with. Primarily first in the church. Uh, it's, been it's written in the scriptures, it says, people will know you are my disciples by the love you show to the brethren. So our love must first be shown within the walls. And then because we love one another, we want more people to be a part of this fellowship. So what do we do? We go tell others about the love of Christ and the love in this fellowship. And we say, come, come, see Christ, experience and know him. Not just experience, but experience and know him. And you get to know him through his word and through his uh, witness of his people. That's how you come to know Christ. Consider them in love. Consider them in good works. Good works. We need to be doing good things that glorify God and help our fellow man, our fellow brethren inside the church. Helping them as much as we're able and can. We should be helping one another with good works. And good works is, is internally and externally. Whether it's in a committee, on a team, Listen, everything that's good that's done in and through a church doesn't have to be reported. You know, used to be people used to say, well, I didn't feel like I could do it because I'm not on this team or I'm not. If, 
If God has put a burden on your heart to help somebody or do something for somebody, you ain't got to come tell nobody. Just go do it. Go serve them. Consider them in good works. Consider them in your gatherings. Look there, it says, let's consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. Now listen, we look around us today, there's a, very, a lot of various reasons why someone may not be here today. And I'm not going to try to make up a whole bunch of different reasons, but we know there's a, a plethora of reasons why whomever it may be that normally sits on the pew with you may not be here today. But it's not for us right now to consider why they're not here. We just need to know they're not here. So let's reach out to them. If you're in a Sunday school class, it's not just the Sunday school teacher's responsibility to go, well, they're not here, let's pray for them. Call them. I mean, this whole afternoon, we ain't got no more church activities. I don't know what you got going on, but, but I ain't got a whole lot more going on. We all need to be faithful. If you're in a Sunday school class and somebody ain't be there, listen, share contact information and reach out to them. Tell them we miss them. Tell them you love them. Tell them you hope they get to feeling better or they're recovering from their surgery or maybe they're preparing for something or, or family came in and they say, listen, we just couldn't make it today. Family came in. Say, well, listen, we just, we're not trying to be upset. We just want you to know we missed you. You're missed. We need to be considering them in our gatherings. We need to consider one another in our gatherings. And when we come together, take it to account. And, and as I've said, I've said this to several people, you know, I have a legalistic tendency. I really have to work toward grace. That sounds crazy, work toward grace. It's, I've experienced grace, but man, my, my thing a lot of times is like it used to be, I mean, I know uh, we don't have Sunday nights here. Didn't have them when I came, okay? But listen, when I was growing up, man, there was Sunday school, Sunday morning, discipleship training, Sunday night, Wednesdays. I went with my dad to deliver tapes, I mean, into the shut-ins. And, and we had uh, GROW, G-R-O-W, that we went out on. We was a part of that, you know? And if you didn't take part in that stuff, I felt like, man, you must be lost. I'm just telling you how I felt. I mean, that's just what it was. You know, I thought, well, gosh, they can't be saved. They didn't come to grow. But they, they might have come to Sunday school, worship, Saturday training, worship, and Wednesday night. That's, that's not fair. Not everybody's called to do that. Not every, well, everybody's called to share the gospel in some way, shape, or fashion, but it might not be your deal to do it that way. But we all need to be sharing in some way, shape, or fashion. So I have, to, I have to consider folks. When I, when I look around the room, I think, well, you know what? I've got to think about so-and-so. They, they've been sick. They've been dealing with this. They, they have this or that or whatever it may be. You know? And so I have to say, all right, Lord, well, please, Lord, open me a window this week or maybe even today. The Lord's convicting me. Maybe even they give them a call, check on them. Call and check on them. And listen, if you're a Sunday school teacher and somebody's been out for two or three weeks to a month, please let me know. Please let me know. We don't want anybody to slip through the cracks. We want to consider one another in our gatherings, whether it be a gathering down the hall, a gathering behind me, or a gathering in this room. Let's consider one another. Consider them in, conser in, uh, in encouraging. Look at what it says. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. That's a, that's a big word for encouraging, which encouraging is actually longer, but um, exhorting and encouraging are very similar in, in their meanings. So we need to be encouraging one another. 
We need to be encouraging one another. Like I said, when we call somebody, it's not to call them and beat them up over the fact that maybe they weren't here. You know, sometimes we need to call them and say, you know, I just wanted to pray with you. Or I, I just want to, is there something I can bring you? Is there something you need? You know, um, sometimes we got church family members that, that need something specific. And we need to be mindful and aware. Not just living in our own little space where we come in and we go out. And we come in and we go out. And we don't think anybody else. We need to consider one another. Consider one another. And then, which is, which is the, a, a big thought here as they conclude this passage of Scripture, consider them as the day approaches. And so much more as you see the day approaching. That's a capital D. And that's talking about uh, Christ's return. It's talking about those end days of when it's drawing close. The people in the, in the New Testament all thought Christ was coming back real soon. I mean, like, they all thought that they were not going to die. Uh, many of them thought they were not going to die before Christ comes back. That's the reason why at Thessalonians there's a, it's written to them, because people were dying. They're like, what are we going to do? All our folks are dying. Christ's supposed to be coming back. But this is the deal. We don't need to be all fretting. If they're believers, that's okay. They're already with him. But we need to be encouraging people all the more as we see the day approaching. If we see people in here week after week after week and you've never seen them walk the aisle to come to faith in Jesus Christ, pray for them. They need Jesus. Don't question the things of, of like either their behavior or their dress or anything like that. Pray for them. Pray for them. I mean, God will get the world out of them. we got to put the word into them. And then once they're saved by the grace of God, they'll desire to put the word into themselves. But you're not going to get the world out of somebody just by going up and making a, a really, you know, off-the-cuff statement. Matter of fact, you're probably going to put them back in the world and they may not come back to the word. We need to consider one another. As the day is approaching, God, Christ is coming back. That's all part of the gospel. He is returning. Do we believe it? Yeah, I believe it. This world is getting worse and worse. It's all part of God's plan. Talked about that a little bit last week. It's all part of God's plan. But when he returns, boy, I'm telling you, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a glorious day. For me, for many of you who know Christ, this is going to be a glorious day. For those who don't, it's not going to be a glorious day. It's going to be a sad day. It's going to be a day that's going to be too late. It's going to be a day that you wished was the day before. 